evening, brothers and sisters. You're a warm welcome to be here again this evening as Neville continues his series on Ecclesiastes. He's asked that we open our evening with the singing of hymn number 375, and uh, we'll follow that with a word of prayer. Brief life is now our portion, brief sorrow, short-lived care. The life that knows no ending nor pain we hope to share. Hymn 375. So pleased to welcome Brother Glenn Cassidy with us tonight from the Wellington Ecclesia to share with us the things around the word of truth. And as Brother Neville continues his series on Ecclesiastes, he's asked that we read as an introduction from Ecclesiastes chapter 9. The ninth chapter of Ecclesiastes. For all this I considered in my heart even to declare all this that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. No man knoweth either love or hatred by all that is before them. All things come alike to all. There is one event to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and to the clean and to the unclean, to him that sacrificeth and to him that sacrificeth not. As is the good, so is the sinner. And he that sweareth is he that feareth an oath. This is an evil among all things that are done under the sun, that there is one event unto all. Yea, also the heart of the sons of men is full of evil and madness is in their heart while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. For to him that is joined to all the living, there is hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they shall die, but the dead know not anything. Neither have they any more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Also their love and their hatred and their envy is now perished. Neither have they any more a portion forever in anything that is done under the sun. Go thy way, eat thy bread with joy and drink thy wine with a merry heart for God now accepteth thy works. Let thy garments be always white and let thy head lack no ointment. Live joyfully with the wife whom thou lovest all the days of the life of thy vanity, which he hath given thee under the sun, all the days of thy vanity, for that is thy portion in this life, and in thy labour which thou takest under the sun. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might, for there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave, whether thou goest. I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, 
neither yet bread to the wise, nor yet riches to men of understanding, nor yet favour to men of skill, but time and chance happeneth to them all. For man also knoweth not his time, as the fishes that are taken in an evil net, and as the birds that are caught in the snare, so are the sons of men snared in an evil time when it falleth suddenly upon them. This wisdom have I seen also under the sun, and it seemed great unto me. There was a little city, and few men within it. And there came a great king against it, and besieged it, and built great bulwarks against it. Now there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city, yet no man remembered that same poor man. Then said I, wisdom is better than strength. Nevertheless, the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard. The words of wise men are heard and quiet more than the cry of him that ruleth among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroyeth much good. I'm now pleased to ask Brother Neville to continue his series to open to us the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. Brother David, and good evening, my dearly beloved brothers and sisters, and our Lord Jesus Christ, and young people. Well, brothers and sisters and young people, once again we come to the divine wisdom as it's recorded in the pages of Ecclesiastes in the words of great King Solomon. You'll remember in our last class on this subject, we, we concluded the end of Ecclesiastes chapter 6, with Solomon having concluded his great experiment in general observation with the realisation that there are many things which are done in this life that we can do ourselves or have done to us in this life which will reduce the satisfaction we have in life and perhaps even remove from us the very blessing that God bestows upon us. We may be oppressed, for example, as he describes in chapter 4. We may be envied, we may be idle, we may be greedy, we may be lonely, we may be willfully disobedient, all of which things will conspire against us to remove from us even the simple blessings of God and the satisfaction of the simple things of life. And so, as is very common to man, Solomon then shifted his gaze to the subject of wealth because often it's found or believed to be found that one more dollar will solve the problem. Just a little more money and things will be all right. But as he found, money was a very fickle and a very uncertain commodity. It never ever delivers as good as it promises. And of course it feeds a lust which can never ever be satisfied. As we concluded that experiment we found in chapter 6 and verse 12 by saying, Who knoweth what is good for man in this life all the days of his vain life which he spendeth as a shadow? Who can tell a man what shall be after him under the sun? And this is where Solomon got to after the conclusion of the second great experiment and where he begins now in chapter 7 with the last and final phase of his quest. And this, of course, is the quest pursued by mature reflection. Now, this is a very large section. Sorry, I'll raise it. This is a very large section in Ecclesiastes. You'll notice 
that Ecclesiastes begins and ends with an introduction and a conclusion. And in between the first verses of chapter 1 and the last verses of chapter 12, we have these three great quests. Chapters 1 and 2 was the quest by personal experience, which you'll remember uh, was the episode where someone built and planted and and bought and sold. He, he, He accumulated things. And all the way through that section, you've got the conspicuous phrases, I did this, I did that. Chapter 4, 5, and 6, the quest for, by, by general observation. When he found he couldn't be satisfied by things he did with his own hands, he looked around. So I suppose you could say that the first quest is what Solomon did. The second quest is what Solomon saw. The third quest, of course, is going to be what Solomon concludes. Because now, having found that nobody has got any more answers than him, Having looked at all these snapshots of life in chapters 4 to 6, and finding only more and more problems, he now begins to put everything together here from chapter 7 to chapter 12. Now tonight we're only going to consider up to the end of chapter 10. Chapter 11 and 12 are, as we'll find, the conclusion. It is, whilst it's part of, the, of his reflection, it's the verdict of the reflection after he's expounded everything, after he's put all this information together. Now you consider just what Solomon is now going to do in these chapters. What is the thing that man should do in his life, he says in chapter 6 and verse 12. Because so much of life is uncertain. One minute man's fighting against the forces of creation. The next minute he's fighting against fellow man. The wicked are prospering and they shouldn't prosper. Wisdom's useful but it's got its own limitations. Time and chance is happening over here, and of course death's knocking at the door over here. All of these things are problems that come upon man, and Solomon's going to now pull all of, he's going to marshal really all of these facts together and distill a conclusion at the bottom that begins to answer some of the fundamental questions that he has been uh, struggling with all the way since chapter 1. And this is the structure, I believe, of this section. Now look at this for a moment, this overhead, because this took me a very long time to do I told you that Ecclesiastes is hard. I'm sorry, it's a bit of an eye burner, but I thought it's better to put it on one page than two. This is the quest pursued by mature reflection. I'll show you, I'll show you why I've broken it up like this, and hopefully when I'm finished tonight you'll agree that this isn't too bad. Very, very hard when you've got chapter 7 down to chapter 12 here. Many things repeated. It seems to go round and round in circles. Very hard to say what is he saying, why is this... Why is this a logical dilution or distillation of the facts? Well, this is what I think Solomon's doing in these last chapters. As you know, chapter 7 verses 1 to 12 are the better things. We looked at them one Sunday ago. He concludes, as you'll remember, in chapter 7 and verses 11 and 12 with wisdom. Wisdom is better than wealth. It's the best of the better things, I suppose you'd say. And so then we have a section where Solomon describes wisdom, explains all about wisdom, that wisdom is best and this is why. I want to draw your attention to two points in that first section, this section here. The first point is that the section begins and ends with the same subject. Life is uncertain. Life's not fair. God's created it like that so that man depends upon God. Man has to understand that, therefore, and make the best of life. Don't expect too much, but live life as it's meant to be lived. 
Wisdom is the means of doing that. You make the best choices. You make the best decisions. You need wisdom for that. The problem is, and you look with me at chapter 7, verse 23. The problem is, Solomon says, All this have I proved by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which is far off and exceeding deep, or deep, deep, who can find it out? Man's capacity cannot sustain the degree of wisdom that God has. And therefore there are two key phrases in this section. The first one, which appears in the first and last subsets, is the uncertainty of life. And the one right in the middle here, verse 23 and 24, God's wisdom is unattainable. Ultimate wisdom in this life is unattainable, because that's exactly what Solomon says here in the middle of verse of chapter 7. He, as smart as he was, he really couldn't grasp some of the answers necessary to answer all the difficult questions of life. However, from God's position, everything's very straightforward. God is not bound by just what might happen in this life. There will be a settling up of all issues. The wicked seem to prosper. That won't happen forever. The injustices that are apparent now will be resolved ultimately and eternally. Don't worry if you can't answer all the questions of life because ultimate wisdom is unattainable. You see, we've got a link with the previous section here. Ultimate wisdom is unattainable here, and he goes and repeats the point here. He says, look, I'm going to solve some of the problems that bother you in this life, the inequities, the injustices of life, but you will never, ever get all the answers. You will never, ever get to the bottom of why things happen like they do, because you just can't understand how complex these things are. And in contrast to the ultimate position of God, this is the ultimate position of man. Life's limited. Everyone dies, whether they be righteous or wicked. Everybody dies. Wise fools, they all die together. And the exhortation is in this section, and he has a small exhortational section, on the object of life, shows us that life is uncertain by design, and therefore what you should expect from life, time and chance, happens to everyone. And therefore, life is uncertain. And once again, we have a link with the beginning section, you see. And he, and he resolves the uncertainty of life, and he resolves the fact that wisdom is, ultimate wisdom is not attainable because you don't need it. You've just got to trust what God says here, and it won't matter. And then, of course, back to wisdom again. It starts now to explain wisdom in a practical sense. What you should do, wisdom and folly, be wise, don't be a fool, he says. But he explains wisdom in all different ways, through all different lenses, if you like. The practical application of wisdom. And then he comes to this verdict, which is the subject of chapters 11 and 12, which is, in fact, merely a continuation of the wisdom and folly issue. But you'll see what the verdict's all about. And this is why I think, this is why I think, I think I'm, I'm right on this, because look, the first portion of chapter 11, he describes wisdom amidst uncertainty. He says, what should you do given that life is uncertain? Which is one of the big issues we've been dealing with back here. The last portion of chapter 12, judgment's coming. Enjoy life, do what you may, but remember, judgment's coming, which is the next big issue which he addresses here. And finally, life is short. You see, he's just explained an awful lot about life and what the brevity of life. What should you do? 
What would a wise man do with his life? Well, the answer is, whatever he's going to do, he'd start young. That's what he would do, you see. And that's going to be Solomon's great conclusion. As I say, God willing, we hope to get up to here tonight. That's quite a lot. But it's no more than we did the last class. I won't speak faster. I'll just cut some material out for you if I see the clock running away. Let's come to chapter 8, verse 1. Once again, I should say I've got overhead transparencies up here, so you shouldn't need to copy all of these things down. Perhaps before I get to chapter 8, verse 1, let's just recap a couple of things from chapter 7. You remember, uh, we looked at chapter 7 in our exhortation, that Solomon was frustrated in in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 because he wasn't equal to the wisdom he sought. Chapter 7, verse 19. Wisdom strengthens the wise more than ten mighty men that are in a city, he says. But there is not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. And so as wonderful as wisdom is, it's contradicted by man in his illogical manner. He just doesn't live it. Even if, he, if, even if he knows a portion of it, he doesn't live consistently what he knows. As a result of that, in verse 25, Solomon set about searching for the person that did have wisdom. And the more he looked, the more frustrated he became because of the enormous gulf between what man should be and what man was. Verse 29 of chapter 7. Lo, this only have I found. God made man upright, but they've sought out many inventions. He's not upright anymore. He needs a redeemer. He needs that one among 10,000. He needs the better man to save him, which is, as we found, what he concluded here in chapter 7. But as much as man is able to apply wisdom, it does have an effect upon him, which is what we find now in chapter 8 and verse 1. Really, the, the, the chapter division here is quite meaningless. Chapter 8 and verse 1 now is talking specifically about who that wise man might be. Who is as the wise man, he says, and who knoweth the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom maketh his face to shine, and the boldness of his face shall be changed. Now you'll notice here, brethren and sisters, young people, that he says, who is as the wise man? He doesn't say who is the wise man. Who is as the wise man? Who is like a wise man? Because, of course, there is no truly wise man. He's proved that in verse 23, apart from the Redeemer. But other than him, there's no truly wise man. But inasmuch as man does approach wisdom by degrees, his face shines, he says. His face shines. That is to say, wisdom illuminates the countenance. It sharpens the intellect. It gives personality to a person. And that's reflected physically by his countenance, by his disposition. The boldness, he says, of his face shall be changed. The word boldness means hardness. There's a softening. There's a softening of the expression, a softening of the disposition. You know, in chapter 1 and verse 18, Solomon said that wisdom merely increased grief and sorrow, he says, because by by thinking about the problems of life, you realize just how big the problems of life were. When you come to chapter 7 and verse 14, which he's explained by now, he says, ah, there are solutions, there is a divine answer. So be calm, he says, be joyful, enjoy the good times, and don't despair over the bad times. It's actually not as bad as we thought in chapter 1, but only because we inject a divine solution. But for the man and woman of God, the greatest illumination, brothers and sisters, must spring from the answer of a clear conscience, surely. 
But even though man has sought out many inventions in verse 29 of the previous chapter, there is a solution. And therefore, everything we do in our lives in the truth has an eternal dimension. So the shining of the face must ultimately relate to someone who is at one with their God. That must be the ultimate shining of face. Like Stephen in Acts chapter 6 and verse 15, about to die for the truth, his face, it says in the record, was as it had been the face of an angel, which Matthew 28 verse 3 tells us shines. Or the Lord on the Mount of Transfiguration in in, uh, Matthew 17 and verse 2, his face shone like the sun, it said, because he was speaking of his death and the implications that would have for mankind. And so you see, there's the shining of immortality. There's the disposition in any truly wise man. And if we have that kind of wisdom, then it won't just change our countenance. It'll change our behaviour, verse 2. We'll keep certain commandments. We'll be more refined in our manners, verse 3. We'll become more discerning in our conduct, verse 4 and 5. You see, so he tells us in verse 2, I counsel thee then, keep the king's commandment, and that in regard to the oath of God. The NIV says, obey the king's command, I say, because you took an oath before God. Now in Bible times, the nation all took an oath before God of loyalty to a new king. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, in verse 3, the elders of Israel all made a league with David at Hebron when David became king after the death of Saul. When David died, in First of Chronicles 29 and verse 24, all the princes and the mighty men and the sons of David all submitted to the rule of the new king Solomon. You see, they, they actually made oaths. They made covenants with the new king in a national sense. And therefore, of course, they had to do what the king said. Well, verse 3 goes on, but... Be not hasty to go out of his sight. Stand not in an evil thing, for he doeth whatsoever pleaseth him. And if you disagree with the king, act with discretion. Don't persist in a bad cause, and certainly do not storm out of the presence of the king. Because he does whatever he wants. He will catch you. The king is all-powerful, you see. Verse 4 Where the word of a king is, there is power. And who may say to him, what doest thou? Whoso keepeth the commandment of the king shall feel no evil thing. And a wise man's heart discerneth both time and judgment. Now what are we saying here? Look at this. As you'll be aware, probably as I began to read those verses, There is a commentary, really, on this in Romans chapter 13 by the words of Paul. And he tells us very much the same things as what we've just read in Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Romans 13, verses really verses 1 to 5. Let every soul be subject to the higher powers. Well, he says in chapter 8 and verse 2, keep the king's command, be subject to the king, because the king has a power. There's no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. So the king acts for God. Who may say, what do you do, the end of verse 4, to the king? He acts for God. That's what Ecclesiastes says, isn't it? The rule is not a terror to good works, but to evil. Don't stand in an evil work, he says in verse 3 of Ecclesiastes. And if you 
do that which is good, and you don't contradict the king, you'll have praise of the same. Which verse 5 says, You shall feel, if you obey the commandment, you shall feel no evil thing. But if you don't, if you do that which is evil, then be afraid, because he bears not the sword in vain. He does whatever he wants to do. You see? Wherefore then, you must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but for conscience sake, because you've taken the oath of God. You see, so we have... <laughs> these words apply to us in a very direct sense, brothers and sisters and young people, don't they? Because here we are under commandment of Romans chapter 13, even if we're not living in the immediate vicinity of a king in this country. But, he says, at the end of verse 5, the wise man's heart does discern both time and judgment. The NIV here says that the wise man's heart discerns the proper time and the procedure. Because there may be times when it's just not the right thing to obey the king. The obvious reference you will know is Acts chapter 5 and verse 29, where Peter and John stood before the Sanhedrin. And they said, when they were questioned, they said, surely we ought to obey God rather than man. You see, there is a proper time and a procedure. So think of this. First of Samuel chapter 19. Saul wants to kill David. Jonathan goes into his father and talks to him about David. And Saul was so impressed by that discussion that he made an oath that he would not kill David. What kind of a discussion was that? But it so impressed his father that Saul, of course, made an oath that he later on tried to break many times. But he promised before God that he would not kill David. There was a right time and a right procedure, you see. Second Samuel chapter 12. Nathan had to go and accuse David of murder and adultery. He had to go into the king and call the king a murderer and an adulterer and ensure that at the end of it, David not only agreed with that sentence, but repented. And so he chose the power. There's a right time and a right procedure, you see. Esther chapter 7. Esther took 24 hours in the presence of the king to finally tell him what was really on her mind concerning Haman. There was a right procedure, you see. We have magnificent examples, of course, in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 4 verse 17 says that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men. He sets up the king, so God appoints kings. They're ordained, ordained by God up here. Daniel 4 verse 17 says that, but in Daniel chapter 1, Daniel wouldn't eat the king's meat. In Daniel chapter 3, the friends wouldn't bow down to the image. In Daniel chapter 6, Daniel wouldn't stop praying in public. Why? Because in Daniel chapter 4 and in verse 35, God is also a king. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar in that verse, Daniel 4 verse 35, Nebuchadnezzar calls him the king of heaven. You see, so we serve two kings. And one king is greater than the other. And we serve the inferior king in so much as his commandments do not conflict with the superior king. But that's a matter of time and judgment. How you do that before the king or before the authorities is a matter of time and judgment. And a wise man will do the right thing. Because, he says in verse 6, to every purpose there is time and judgment. And therefore the misery of man is great upon him. There's always a right time, a right place, a right way. Therefore, he says, the misery of man is great. It should be, although the misery of man is great 
upon him. No matter what the circumstances are, whether in misery or otherwise, there is a right time and a right place and a right way. And it's our wisdom to decide what that is and when that should be. For he knoweth that his man knoweth not that which shall be. For who can tell him when it shall be? We don't know the future, you see. Life is uncertain. This is a, a section now on uncertainty. This is the conclusion of, well, this is the beginning, really, of the section in, of wisdom. So verse 8 he says, There is no man that hath power over the spirit to retain the spirit. Neither hath he power in the day of death. And there is no discharge in that war, neither shall the wickedness deliver those that are given to it. Four great maxims, he says, concerning death. Four great limitations of mankind in verse 8. Firstly, he has no power over the spirit. That is the spirit of life, life force. Man can't, we can't change the fact that we die. If God chose to withdraw his spirit, there is nothing we can do to stop him. We have no control whatsoever over birth and death. Secondly, he says, he can't control the day of his death. Even if you know you're going to die and you resign yourself to that fact, when the day comes, you can't delay it. If it's inconvenient, that's too bad. What will happen will happen. And he says there's no discharge in that war. The word discharge here means leave of absence. And in a normal war, people do take leaves of absence. Soldiers will take leave during a war. But not in this war, not in the war of death. There's no discharge. You see, we're fighting a war. Listen to this commentator. This is a realm in which every man must advance and advance alone to single combat and every man in succession fall. That's the war. You only go one way. You never retreat. You never take leave. And when it's your time to die, you die. That's the war. And he says, neither, number four, shall wickedness deliver those that are given to it. By fair means or foul, you cannot stop it. Even the king will die. Death, you see, is the great leveller. And now from verse 9, perhaps I'll put this back up for you. Here we are now, we've just finished the end of a section. From verse 9... To the end of chapter 8, we have this next section on God's, on God's unattainable position, on the great oversight that God has of all of creation and the resolution which he's placed upon that. You see, there are many anomalies in life, things that happen that shouldn't happen, unfair things that happen that shouldn't happen. Solomon tells us in chapter 7 and verse 13 that life's designed like that. It's been deliberately made crooked, he says, in verse 13 of chapter 7. And the reason for that in verse 14 is that, well, God's put that, those things in place to force man to consider his position before God. The problem is, the big problem is that where anomalies occur in life, man exploits them. Often at the expense of fellow man, and often wickedly. And so in verses 9 to 11, he gives us a picture. Verse 9, he says that there was a man who ruled over other men to his hurt. That is, the ruler afflicts people. He rules over them to their hurt. In this case, it seems that that ruler is a priest or associated with the temple somehow, because in verse 10 it tells us that this man used to come and go from the temple. Well, then he dies. 
And when he dies, he's buried. And his, at his burial, every wicked thing that he had done was completely forgotten. Every wicked thing he had done, it says in verse 10, was completely forgotten. And of course, there'd be great eulogies. You can imagine how much he had done for this or for that cause, how good this man was in life. He was an out-and-out criminal, but he was buried in peace. Where's the justice? There is no justice in life for that man. He got away with everything, but not quite, because verse 11 says, just because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. The implication? Sentence will come. The wicked eventually will be judged. And you see, that's what we say. Don't worry about injustice now. It will not go on forever. Eventually the wicked will be judged. Then in verses 12 to 15 he gives another picture. There are two wicked men in this picture. One is extremely wicked. He does evil a hundred times, the record tells us. He lives to a good old age. Uh, Events happen in his life and come upon him as though he were completely righteous. He lives a life of unmixed good. And the other man is righteous. One that fears God. And events come upon him in his life as though he was wicked. Verse 14, Solomon calls that a great vanity. He says, this is a travesty. This is just unjust. It is unfair. But verse 13 says that judgment will come. And the wicked shall not prolong his days. Judgment will come eventually. And when it does, it will come eternally. You see, another two great for us there. Look at these verses. The vindication of the righteous. It will happen, you see. The righteous one day will be vindicated. Psalm 58. The righteous shall rejoice when he seeth the vengeance. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked, so that a man shall say, Verily, there is a reward for the righteous. Verily, he is a God that judgeth in the earth. And that's the great problem of Ecclesiastes, you see, because there was no judgment. There was no apparent justice to come, certainly none that appears in this life. And Solomon wrings his hands trying to solve those sorts of anomalies and can't. And can't. He's got to invoke the next life. He's got to look beyond the grave to solve those sorts of problems, which, of course, he does here. Similarly, Romans 8, verse 18, I reckon, he says, that the sufferings of this present time, which might be unjust, which might be unfair, those sufferings are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. You see, there is redress, but it won't come in this life. Not necessarily in this life. Ecclesiastes 8 and verse 12, It shall be well with them that fear God, which fear before him, And that's his conclusion, you see. Don't worry. God does count everything. It is under control. Even though injustice might not be dealt to in this life. And his conclusion, therefore, is in verse 15 of chapter 8. He says, well, knowing this, I commended mirth. Because a man has no better thing under the sun than to eat and to drink and to be merry. For... That shall abide with him of his labor, the days of his life, which God gives him under the sun. 
The same conclusion, of course, that we've met a number of times before in the book of Ecclesiastes. But now we have the definitive answer. Don't try and look for justice and equity in this life. You won't find it, he says, because God doesn't plan to settle the score until the next life. So if you look for justice now, if you look for the resolution of all the anomalies of life now, you will be eternally dissatisfied. You will be upset and depressed because things aren't going to be solved in this life. But there is a God of judgment, he says. And so therefore, he commends mirth. The word mirth here means happiness. Be happy, he says. Now you understand, be happy, be positive, enjoy the, the blessings that life brings. And don't try to understand everything that happens and why it happens. Verse 16, he says at the end of the verse, look, he says, for also there is neither day nor night that seers sleep with his eyes. He says, I have worried myself sick about this issue. I've stayed up night and day trying to resolve this issue, trying to fathom the, the nature of the problem and the solution to the problems of injustice, of inequity, of anomaly in this life. It can't be done. Remember, remember Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and verse 23? He said there that a man's days are sorrows and travail his heart taketh not rest in the night. And Solomon must have spent many, many nights on this quest trying to investigate the problems of life, what's caused them and what possibly can be done to rectify them. The problem is, but for some of us, it is just not in our power to rectify the problems of life. We might be in an unjust situation. We, we, there may be nothing at all that we can do about that. And he spent night after night trying to work out how to answer that question and couldn't do it. There is no answer to that in this life. The problem is, as he goes on in verse 17, well, look, he says, I beheld all the work of God, that a man cannot find out the work that's done under the sun, because though a man, that is me, labor to seek it out, yet he shall not find it. Yea, more than that, though a wise man think to know it, yet shall he not be able to find it. You just don't have the fact. Ultimate wisdom is unattainable in this life. Well, when we come to chapter 9, we investigate the next big issue. Here we are here. Chapter 9, the second big issue that now Solomon has to try and wrestle with as he explains things in terms of wisdom. Verse 2 of chapter 9, he says, listen, listen, all things come alike to all. There's one event to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good, the clean, the unclean, to him that sacrifices, to him that doesn't sacrifice, to the good, to the sinner, he that swears and he that fears an oath. There is an evil among all things that are done under the sun, that there is one event unto all. Yea, also the heart of the sons of men is full of evil and madness, and madness is in their heart while they live. And after that... They go to the dead. They go to the dead, he says. And if the previous section can explain the ultimate control that God has and the ultimate oversight that God has over everything, here is the ultimate helplessness of mankind. Whether we be righteous or wicked, we all suffer the effects of mortality. Whether we're godly or ungodly, we all suffer the effects of mortality. We shall all die, he says. You might expect that the spectre of death hanging over the population of, of today, of any day, might make man more serious. 
The fact that man knows that he's going to die, that there is no solution to, to the problems of mortality, that perhaps man might be more serious. He, he might take life more seriously. He might look at religion. Not true, is it? It's not true. Why isn't it true? He says here, look, the sons of men in verse 3, their lives are full of evil and madness is in their heart while they live. And then they die. They know they're going to die, but they don't change anything. They, they live a mad, foolish life. The word madness means folly. All he wants to do is to eat, to drink, to be merry, to die. And die happy. Die merry. And if that's shorter, well, that's probably better. doesn't want to learn the truth. Because that involves sacrifice, you see. And he wants all his blessings now. Hopeless. Well, verses 4 to 10 then describe the article of death. That death is a cessation. There is no work. There's no device. There's no knowledge. There's no wisdom in the grave. And therefore he concludes in verse 7. And here's our exhortational section. You remember the these and the thys? Look, verses 7 to 10 is an exhortational section to the believers. Go thy way. Eat thy bread with joy. Drink thy wine with a merry heart, because God now accepteth thy works, he says. God accepteth thy works. That is to say, literally it means God approves of what you're going to do. And what you're going to do is to go your way, eat bread with joy, and drink wine with a merry heart. It does not mean you can embark on levity or frivolity. Because he goes on in verse 8, that your garments should be white, and your head should lack no ointment. And white garments are obvious in Scripture, aren't they? Revelation 19 and verse 8 tells us that, that fine linen, clean and white, is the righteousness of the saints. In Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18 he says, Though your sins be as scarlet, yet they shall be white as snow. White is the colour of righteousness. So he's saying, enjoy all the blessings that life brings in verse 7, but live a godly life in verse 8. Keep your garments pure. 1 Timothy 4 verse 3. God has created these things to be received with thanksgiving by them which believe and know the truth. God has created these things to be received with thanksgiving by them which believe and know the truth. 1 Timothy 4 verse 3. And therefore, verse 9, he says, Live joyfully with the wife of whom thou lovest all the days of thy life of thy vanity, which... He has given thee under the sun all the days of thy vanity. For that is thy portion in this life and in thy labour which thou takest under the sun. And once again, you've got the same kind of words in verse 9 as you found back in chapter 8, verse 15. This is your portion. This is the gift of God. This is the divine blessing for the here and now. The conclusion which he's made chapter after chapter after chapter, maybe half a dozen or eight times in the book of Ecclesiastes, Word, these words or very similar words to this occur. But because he's talking about death, life and death, he doesn't just say, enjoy your labour. He also tells you to enjoy the lives of those you love, be that your wife or anyone you love, of course. And the verse can't just be limited to marriage, can it? Because David had a friend in 2 Samuel 1 and verse 26 whose love to him was so wonderful, he says, that it passed even the love of women. And David wrote that verse as a married man. Married, in fact, to Jonathan's sister. So enjoy those who you love. Enjoy your lives together with your ecclesia, with your family, with those you love. And then he concludes the section, 
with two most intriguing verses, verses 11 and 12. I returned, he said, and I saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, neither yet bread to the wise, nor riches to men of understanding, nor favour to men of skill, but time and chance happens to them all. For a man also knows not as time, as the fishes that are taken in an evil net, as the birds that are caught in a snare, so are the sons of men snared in an evil time when it falleth suddenly upon them. What's it talking about? Well, in verse 11 it talks about time and chance. The word time means an unknown or unexpected moment. That's what a time is. An unknown or unexpected moment. And a chance a chance is an unpredictable event or an accident. And so he says very simply, unpredictable things happen at unforeseen times to everyone under the sun. And the question has been raised then. Well, if time and chance applies to those under the sun, which of course is what it says in the early words of verse 11, if time and chance applies to those under the sun, does it apply to the saints or not? Are we subject to time and chance? You'll remember we made the distinction in an earlier talk between the world and the ecclesia, between those that are under the sun and those that see the sun. We highlighted certain sections of the record based on the words thee and thy, thou, excitational sections which are spoken to the brethren, none of which include the words under the sun. So, are we, brothers and sisters, are we under time and chance, or aren't we? Well, what Solomon does in this chapter here is he describes life under the sun. When he does that, he's referring simply to the nat to natural mortal life, of which we are all a part. In that sense, the saints are just as much under the sun as everybody else is under the sun. The difference, of course, with the saints is that for the world, their sole dominion is under the sun. Our sole dominion is not under the sun. We live under the sun now, but we see the sun. We know what life's about, and we know what life offers, what it doesn't offer, and that death is not the end in that sense. So whilst we live under the sun in this mortality, we do see the sun. We're subjected to all the vagaries of human life. Our lives are just as broken as everyone else's lives. Things, anomalies occur in our lives just like they do for everyone else. But that's not all that occurs in our lives. But it is all that occurs in the lives of the world. And you want to see the proof of that? You know, I said verses 7, and 7 to 10 are this exhortational section. And you'll see the word thy occur all the way through this section. Well, this is an exhortational section, but he's made an exception here. Because in verse 9, he talks about the saints being under the sun. Twice the phrase under the sun occurs in verse 9. It's the only time, it occurred, the only verse in Ecclesiastes where he's making an excitational point to the believers where he uses the words under the sun. Because, of course, death does happen to all men. As he said in verse 2, clean or unclean, wise or false, righteous or unrighteous, death comes upon all. It is, it is a feature of life under the sun. Well, then the question arises, if that's true, how do we explain providence? What part does providence play? And I think, you know, the best definition 
comes from Brother Roberts in the ways of providence. The very early pages, and this is what he says. There is such a thing as chance, as distinct from what God does. The Bible declares this in Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verse 11. And the experience of every day teaches it. Every moment teems with the incidents of chance. The whirl of a cloud of dust before the windy gust coming around the corner of the house illustrates the point. It happens to my house, and it is my next door neighbour's house. It is a chance event, and the dust might be identical around both of our houses. God has control of all chance, but all chance is not controlled. And that's the point. When God controls chance, we call it providence. But if he allows the world to run according to the natural laws that he has set up, then it's not providence. Of course, God could change the laws. God made the laws in the beginning. He could interfere whenever he liked, but once he's set the thing in motion, he doesn't have to consciously make every little flower grow. It grows because of laws that have already been established. It is controlled, that is, chance is controlled when God's purpose requires it. His purpose does not require him to decide which shells every or any child on the seashore shall pick up and which throw away, unless the incident be a link in the purpose being worked out, and then the hand of the child will be guided. This illustration touches a great fact, which it is important to see clearly. Now, I think, that under, I, th- I think that's quite clear. I think that explains the difference between chance and providence. Chance, therefore, happens to all of us. But providence also happens to those in the truth, or coming to the truth. It doesn't necessarily at all happen to those in the world who have no interest. The fools who live their life in folly, in evil, and in madness, which he's described earlier on in this chapter. Well, now, having explained the purpose of life here in chapter 9 and the uncertainties that life contains, Solomon now turns back to the practical consideration of wisdom. In chapter 8, verses 16 and 17, the last couple of verses there, he explained that ultimate wisdom was unattainable. That We just can't understand the things that God knows. And therefore, wisdom, therefore, is limited by man's capacity. Chapter 9, verses 1 to 12, we've just looked at wisdom is limited by man's mortality. Mortality itself limits our wisdom. There's only so much we'll ever learn in life. And it takes time to learn things, and our lives are finite. We we, we just can't possibly learn everything anyway, even if we could contain it. And then from verses 13 to 18, the last half dozen verses of this chapter, he says, wisdom is limited by man's estimation. That's why so few people seek the truth, you see. Wisdom actually is undervalued. This most precious commodity is undervalued by most of mankind. And he says, look, I'll tell you a story in verse 13 here of chapter 9. It's a classic illustration of the vanity of life as we see it in verses 11 and 12. Verse 13, this wisdom have I seen also under the sun, and it seemed great unto me. He said, I was most impressed with the futility of this issue. There was a little city, and a few men within it. There came a great king against that city. He besieged it, and he built great bulwarks against it. But there was found in that city a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city from the siege. Yet no man remembered that same poor man. Then said I, wisdom is better than strength. 
Nevertheless, the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. A classic illustration of the vanity of chapter 9 and verse 11. Because in this case, the battle wasn't to the strong, as it says in verse 11. Because wisdom prevailed over strength. Neither was bread to the wise, because nobody, after this city was delivered, nobody remembered who delivered the city. Neither were there riches to them of understanding, because the, the poor man remained poor. He was forgotten after he had done this great deliverance and saved the city completely forgotten. So, of course, verse 11 came absolutely true for him. In all of these categories, he did not succeed, even though, even though he delivered the city. Now, we don't know which event Solomon's talking about as he writes these words. It is probable, I suppose, that he is citing a specific event that happened in his life. The other point, of course, is that nobody remembered it, so he possibly couldn't have even named the names anyway. But there is a remarkable example in Scripture of an event just like this. It's not this event, because it's a woman that delivers the city. It was the siege of Abel Beth Maaka in 2 Samuel 20 and verse 15. And Joab came against the city in 2 Samuel 20, and he besieged it. He, he was very, very serious. He besieged it. He dug a trench around it. He even brought rams up against the walls of that city to knock it down. And a wise woman cries out from the city, Joab, she says, why are you going to destroy a mother in Israel? Oh, far be it from me, says Job, far be it for me to touch anyone. I just want Sheba the son of Bichri. Well, you know the story. You want Sheba, or will this do? It overcomes the head, doesn't it? By lunchtime, the army was gone. A wise woman, 2 Samuel 20, verse 15, saved the city, delivered everything. Who knows if that woman was ever remembered? Scripture never records her name. As far as Scripture is concerned, she was just a wise woman. A mother in Israel, she calls herself nothing. No hint of who she might have been. And I suppose a generation or two later, God. Did anyone listen to anything else she might have ever said? You see, wisdom is undervalued. And so are the people who possess it. Everybody, everybody was very, very happy with that poor man when he delivered the city. But after the deed was done, who wanted to hear what the poor man said? Who do people want to hear from these days? Well, they want to hear from all the people in verse 11 who don't really succeed all that often. They want to hear from the fastest. They want to hear from the strongest, the richest, the most skillful. They don't want to hear from the wisest, do they? Look at all the personalities who have the ear of the world, who have the ear of the media. Who are they? Athletes, actors, businessmen. There are very few people who ever want to hear wisdom because it's undervalued. It's worth a fortune. It's grossly undervalued. But there are some, and you read of them in verse 17. The words of wise men, you see, are heard in quiet more than the cry of him that ruleth among fools. The words of the wise are heard in quiet more than the cry of them, that are, more than the words of them that rule among fools. Isaiah chapter 42, this is exactly what Christ did. Isaiah 42 verse 2, it tells us, Behold my servant, whom I uphold. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. And where did the Lord take his disciples to teach them? To a desert place. Up the top of a mountain. To a little house in Bethany, didn't he? The still small voices. So he operated, he spoke to their hearts. Didn't cry in the street. Talked to them in quiet, 
and taught them the truth. You want to have a classic illustration of the cry of him that rules among fools? Turn on your radio. What will you hear? you hear the parliamentary debate. An absolute fulfilment of the stupidity of those words. And I don't think I'll be wrong any day to make that statement. Verse 18. Wisdom, he says, is better than weapons of war. Amply demonstrated, of course, by that poor man in verse 15. Which is why the Apostle Paul says, in 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 4, that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. The other weapons of our warfare, that's, that, that's what really takes down cities, the wisdom of the word, enormously powerful. But as powerful as wisdom is, as enormously powerful as wisdom is, there is one thing that's more powerful. Verse 18, one sinner destroys much good. Wisdom can overcome weapons of war, but sin can overcome wisdom, he says. And this is an example, I think, very possibly from Solomon's own life. You look at this. There was a man, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who was renowned for wickedness. He made Israel to sin 20 times. 20 different kings are spoken of in Scripture as being influenced, kings of Israel, of course, in the north, as being influenced by Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And when Josiah came to rule, it tells us that the altar that was at Bethel and the high place which Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, had made, he tore them all down. One sinner destroyed much good, but look at Solomon, the son of David. Only two verses earlier, Josiah had a problem with him as well, you see? Because the high places that were before Jerusalem on the right of the Mount of Corruption, on Olivet, which Solomon, the king of Israel, had built for Ashtaroth, for Chemosh, and for Milcom, did the king defiled. And as wicked as Jeroboam the son of Nebat was, and as much good as he destroyed, is directly paralleled by the work of Solomon himself. One sinner. How many generations later was that? And Solomon's work is still effective. Is still effective to his infamy on the Mount of Corruption. One sinner surely destroys much good. The problem is, of course, with sin... It's got a disproportional effect. In the natural, it's far easier to destroy something than to build. If you want to to build a house, it might take you three months. If you want to destroy it, it might take you a day. It might take you less than a day. That's what sin's like compared with wisdom, isn't it? Think of the tongue in James chapter 3 and verse 5. How great a matter, he says, a little fire kindleth. The tongue is a world of iniquity. Just the smallest member does by far the most damage. Far easier to destroy than to build in such in a vastly disproportionate ratio. But tragically, as chapter 10 and verse 1 shows us, folly isn't just restricted to sinners. It isn't just sinners that do foolish things. Sometimes even wise men do foolish things themselves. And therefore, what's true of the sinner in a collective sense is true of the wise man in a personal sense. Dead flies, he says, cause the ointment of the apothecary to send forth a stinking savour. So does a little folly him that is in reputation for wisdom and for honour. And you see the link, of course, with chapter 9 and verse 18. One sinner destroys much good, one misdeed destroys much reputation. The problem, I suppose, the real tragedy of this verse, is that wise men most often stand for principles. 
They most often stand for a cause, which is good. And when the wise man when the wise man embarrasses himself, he also embarrasses his cause. He devalues everything he stands for. That's the that's human nature. It evaluates things like that. It's a great tragedy that one misdemeanor can in fact discredit an entire cause, which might otherwise be absolutely just and good. But the wise man's besmirched his reputation and devalued the cause that he stands for. We looked at this cause last, this verse last Sunday, so I won't speak about it anymore, but I'll offer you one reference on it, which is interesting because it, it speaks directly of the issue of the verse. Genesis 34, verse 30. After Simeon and Levi slew all the men of Shechem, what did Jacob say? You have troubled me, he said, and made me to stink among the inhabitants of land because of what you've done. You've made me to stink amongst the inhabitants of the land because of what you've done. That's exactly the issue of this verse, isn't it? His reputation was completely degraded. But if a wise man is truly wise, then he'll see to it that he doesn't let himself down. So verse 2 goes on and says, Listen, the wise man's heart is at his right hand, but the fool's heart is at his left. The right-hand side, of course, is associated with, with strength, with dexterity. It's the, it's the place of acceptance at judgment, the right-hand side of the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 25. Psalm 16 and verse 18 tells us, I have set Yahweh always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. The point is, a wise man knows where his heart is at all times. And his emotions are under control at all times. His heart performs properly at all times. The fall, in contrast, is undisciplined, undexterous, erratic. He can't control himself. And so therefore, verse 3, also he said, When he that is a fool walketh by the way, his wisdom fails him. And he says to everyone that he is a fool. Fools can't hide their folly. It's impossible. Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 16. Every prudent man deals with knowledge but the fool lays open his folly. He can't help himself, can he? He doesn't see any reason for self-control. He's never wrong. Anyone else that tries to correct him, well, they're just a fool. He really is uncontrollable. And the classic example, of course, of the need for self-control is when you're in the presence of someone who can control you. Verse 4. If the spirit of the ruler rise up against thee, leave not thy place, for yielding pacifies great offences. So the king is angry with you. And perhaps the king is a fool. What do you do? Leave not thy place, he says. Or as it literally means, don't tender your resignation. Do not quit. Because yielding pacifies. Obviously, Proverbs 15 verse 1, a soft answer turns away wrath. But what about this one? Proverbs 19 and verse 11. The discretion of a man defers his anger, and it is his glory to pass over a transgression. The discretion of a man defers his anger, and it is his glory to pass over a transgression. Proverbs 19 and verse 11. Well, now verses 5 to 7, Solomon goes on and makes an observation about foolish kings. I've seen an evil, he says, under the sun. As an error which proceeds from the ruler, folly set in great dignity, the rich sitting in low places. I've seen servants upon horses, and princes walking as servants upon the earth. Four incongruities he names here. 
four big problems. The first one, folly being set in great dignity. A full ruling. The second one, the rich. The rich, he says, in low places. Rich here meaning noble or wealthy. In this context, in contrast to the four, they would be wise. Probably people well-bred, capable aristocrats. The third problem, servants riding on horses. And the fourth problem, princes walking like servants. And the problem you see with foolish kings is that they promote their friends. Rehoboam did it. A foolish king promoted his friends, split the kingdom. Split the kingdom straight away. Proverbs 30, verse 22. For three things the earth is disquieted, and for four which it cannot bear. A servant when he reigneth, and a fool when he is filled with meat. The earth can't bear it, you see. It's contrary to nature. It's a disruption, and it won't last for long. Remarkably, you know, in the book of Esther, in the book of Esther, we've got a number of links with this very situation because there was a fool set in dignity and his name was Haman. And, and there was a man, a very low degree, but a very, very worthy man called Mordecai. A man who, of, of course, was recorded in the king's annals as a very faithful man, loyal to the king. And the demise of, demise of Haman resulted in the servant being on a horseback, led by the prince, didn't it? But you see, the principle behind these verses is that we've got to hear a reversal of the proper order. And whenever that happens, there's going to be problem. There's going to be consequences because the earth is disquieted. Nature can't bear these sorts of things. It won't stay like that for long. And so verses 8 to 11 now talks about those consequences. He that digs a pit shall fall into it. Whoso breaketh a hedge, a serpent shall bite him. Any any malicious or vindictive intent often recoils upon the person who institutes it. In the illustration of the previous verse, Haman was hung on his own gallows. It happened, didn't it? It came back exactly as he planned it. Whoso digs a pit, he shall fall into it. His own gallows were used for him. And he goes on, he says, Whoso breaks the hedge, the serpent shall bite him. In the Middle East, in ancient times, in Bible times, houses, fields, they were all, in many cases, hedged with stone walls. Broad, quite low stone walls. If a vindictive neighbour decided to kick down the wall, there was a very good chance he'd get bitten by one of the many snakes which took habitation in those walls. It's cause and effect. That is the likely thing to occur. Proverbs 5 verse 22. His own iniquity shall take the wicked himself, and he shall be holden with the cords of his sins. Proverbs 5 verse 22. And he goes on in verse 9. Look, he says, Whoso removeth stone shall be hurt therewith, and he that cleaveth, cleaveth wood shall be endangered thereby. Quarrying and axemanship are dangerous jobs. A quarried stone could fall upon you. The head of the axe could come off. A splinter could come upon you. You could, you could kill someone. You could cut yourself. Dangerous activities have dangerous consequences. And you can quarry rock or you can cut wood in either a wise or a foolish manner. Verse 10. Perhaps I'll put this back. Verse 10 he says, If the iron be blunt, that is the axe head be blunt, and he do not 
wet or sharpen the edge, then he must put to more strength. But wisdom is profitable to direct. The explanation's obvious, isn't it? Wisdom and planning is better than brute force. You should take thought about what you do before you do it, so that you do it the best way. And can you see the relationship between verse 10 and verse 6? A blunt axe to the expert is like a fool in great dignity. All brute force and no skill. You see, it's the same point being... These are not verses about how to cut down trees or how to take rocks out of the hillside. These are verses about people, aren't they? And here he has in verse 11 a counterbalance. Surely, he says, the serpent will bite without enchantment and a babbler is no better. The NIV says this, if the snake bites before it's charmed, there is no profit to the charmer. The babbler here, as the margin says, is the master of the tongue, the snake charmer. It appears that before they played flutes or pipes to charm snakes, they made noises with their tongues and tried to charm the snake that way. The point is, of course, it doesn't really matter how skillful you are. If the snake bites you, if you're not quick enough to charm the snake and the snake bites you, you're dead. The point, preparation is essential, but not procrastination. If you spend all day sharpening the axe, you'll never get any wood cut. You see, this is the counterbalance to, to planning, as recorded in verse 10. And a wise man, you see, has to balance all these issues, brothers and sisters and young people. We're living in a world subject to time and chance. Things might not always go our way. Life is short, perhaps shorter than we understand. And there's a need for care. There's a need for preparation. There's a need for planning. There's a need for foresight. But these verses are not telling us how to cut wood. They're talking about far more serious issues of life, aren't they? Verses 12 to 15 now illustrates the contrast between the wise and the fool by the way they speak. Verse 12 says that the words of a wise man's mouth are gracious. And that's all it says in this section about, about the wise man's speech. You read of the, of the fool in verse 12, of foolishness in verse 13, the fool, verse 14, the foolish, verse 15. The fool begins with stupidity, and ends, in verse 13, with mischievous madness. Verse 14 says that the fool is full of words. A man cannot tell what shall be, and what shall be after him. Who can tell him? He thinks he knows the future. He thinks he knows how everything's going to turn out. You can't reason with him. Proverbs 18, verse 2. A fool has no delight in understanding, but that his heart may discover itself. All he wants to hear is what he thinks. He's delighted by his own opinions, his own prognostications. Proverbs 15 and verse 2. The tongue of the wise uses knowledge aright, but the mouth of fools poureth out foolishness. He can't help himself, can he? He's out of control. And you know, at some point, all the wisdom writings, all the books of wisdom in the Bible, turn to speak of the tongue. Because James says that the tongue is like the rudder of a ship. It's just a tiny little member, but it turns the whole body, and the tongue controls everything, really. The fact is that our speech is the acid test of our wisdom. The wise man's words, he says here in verse 12, are gracious. The fool's words in verse 14 are wicked madness. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 34, Jesus said that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And in Luke chapter 4 and verse 22, in the synagogue of Nazareth, he himself, it tells us, they all bear him witness 
And they wondered at the gracious words which came forth from his mouth. Because they were the words of a wise man. In verse 12. Now the final few verses of this chapter all really talk about the risk of poor leadership in the nation. Verse 16 he says, Woe to thee, O land, when thy king is a child, and thy princes eat in the morning. It's trouble if the king's a child, and he hasn't got the, the right perspective about what has to be done in the kingdom. Joash, you know, took the throne when he was only one year old. It went well with him. All the years that Jehoiada was alive. So he was a young king, but he had a, he had a superintendent. And things went fine for Joash while Jehoiada was alive, until Jehoiada died. Manasseh took the throne at 12 years old, had no one to help him. Corruption immediately. Absolute corruption immediately. And it's for that reason, of course, that the Apostle Paul says to Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 22, lay hands on no man suddenly. 1 Timothy 3, verse 6, don't choose a novice, he says. Because he won't see the seriousness of the issues. He won't address them quickly, or else he'll be elevated in the position that he's in and become a fool. He won't stop the princes in verse 17 from taking liberties. He won't maintain the house in verse 18. And because he's got a lot of money in verse 19, he'll abuse things that are put into his care and he'll spend the inheritance. You can't have a young king. The nation will not go well with a young and inexperienced king. And the last verse of the chapter is probably the most famous of all, you know. This is wisdom and thought. This is a warning against indiscretion. Curse not the king, he says. No, not in thy thought. And curse not the rich in thy bedchamber, for a bird of the air shall carry the voice, and that which has wings shall tell the matter. At least two common sayings have sprung from this verse. The first one would be, the little birds told me. That's come directly from this verse. And the second one most probably is that the walls have ears. And we're reminded, of course, of the incident in 2 Kings chapter 6 and verse 12 where the king of Syria was continually frustrated by the fact that Elisha knew the very words he spoke in his bedchamber. The bedchamber here is the most private room of your life. The most private room of your house, the most private room of your life. It's the place where you, where you let your guard down totally. It's the place where you tell all your heart. And he says, be careful. Be careful for two reasons. Firstly, it might not be as private as you thought. The walls might have ears. A little bird might fly in and fly out and take your message away with it. And secondly, of course, it's not healthy to do that. It's not healthy to become embittered. Sooner or later, you'll damage yourself. Sooner or later, your heart will be revealed by your tongue. Instead, as Matthew chapter 6 and verse 6 says, the Lord said, Go to your closet, shut the door, pray to your father in secret, and your father which sees in secret shall reward you openly. And with that, brothers and sisters, young people, Simon concludes his reasoning upon wisdom, his estimation of the value of wisdom, of the use of wisdom. All he has to do now in, verses, in chapters 11 and 12 is to conclude about what this means for us in life. So what have we found tonight? Well, some very simple things. Firstly, we're living in a world of time and chance. 
It's inevitable that things won't always go our way. When they do, rejoice. Rejoice when things go our way. When they don't, then draw close to God in prayer and pray for the good that he might bring ultimately out of those things. And then don't try and fathom why things go like they go. All the whys and wherefores of life, all the, all the anomalies, all the discontinuities of life, don't try and work them out. You, you'll never ever get to the bottom of it. You can never find solutions to unfairness and injustice in this life. It just may be beyond your power or beyond the power that those, of those who are subjugated to it. But be comforted simply by this fact, that there is a God of judgment. And it shall be well with them that fear Yahweh. In the meantime, live heartily. Live enthusiastically. Enjoy the blessings of life that life brings, that God provides And enjoy the company of those you love. Be consistent in life. Remember how much easier it is to tear down than to build. Remember how damaging the tongue can be and how easily a good reputation is tarnished. Keep your heart at your right hand. And finally, seek wisdom. Pursue it. Apply it. And don't undervalue it. That our faces might all shine with the enlightenment that it brings, that we might truly be people that see the sun.